0: This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for a second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist.
1: Hey there, Corey Lundberg here of Altus Performance. And this is episode 10 of the Earn Your Edge podcast. And it's a special one, one that we're really, really excited about. When Cam and I first started this project, one of the first things that we did, we came up with a list of kind of dream guests. We weren't too sure how we would connect with these people or if we could get them to come on, but we had a list of people that we really admired who we would love to have a meaningful conversation with as a way to amplify their message to our audience as We felt that their message was, was really impactful on us and would similarly have an impact on a like-minded audience. And as luck would have it, Cam crossed paths with one of those people recently, and so we're really excited to share his conversation with one of our favorite authors, Ryan Holiday, And the reason that Ryan was on that initial wish list of guests is because he's written a couple of books that have been really important for us, The Daily Stoic, and especially related to sports and performance, The Obstacle is the Way. And if you haven't heard of The Obstacle is the Way, it's become a bit of a cult favorite among professional sports teams, organizations. It's been like required reading for the teams and staffs of guys like Pete Carroll and Nick Saban and Joe Madden of the Cubs and countless other coaches and front office types in, you know, any high performance organization. And The Daily Stoic and Obstacles Away are both books that we have recommended to a great number of clients that are climbing that competitive ladder as we see the messages contained in both being an invaluable tool and helping them make their way along that journey. And I won't get into specifics of why because Cam and Ryan do a really good job of digging into that in their conversation. But I'll just say that as avid readers and curious people who love to learn new things and consume a lot of books related to high performance and mastery, You know, no matter how many books you read, there's only a select few that have the power to, you know, fundamentally make a a big impact on how you see things and how you coach and how you operate. Ryan calls those quake books. You know, you encounter them at just the right time, and they shake your foundations. They they seem perfectly applicable and relevant to whatever it is that you're doing, and open your mind to a new way of thinking at just the right time and right way. And so, hopefully, that sets the stage a bit for why talking to a guy like Ryan is uh, an exciting opportunity, and having him on the podcast was such a treat. So, if you've read the book you've heard of Ryan I know that you'll enjoy the entire almost hour of conversation between him him and cam and if you haven't heard of Ryan, I'll offer you a couple alternatives you can a listen to the whole interview and learn more about Ryan. the first half of the conversation he and cam discuss a lot about his writing process, you know how he's earned his edge in his craft and developed his expertise as a writer or B, if you are most interested in how Ryan's message can help you as an athlete as a golfer, Starting at about the 20 minute mark, things get a little bit more sports specific. So feel free to skip ahead if that's the case. Either way, if you fall into the category of people being introduced to Ryan for the first time, we're excited that we have the privilege of introducing you to his message and a message that could make a massive impact on you. And you should definitely look into his book, starting with the obstacle is the way. So with all the prelude out of the way, thank you so much for tuning in. We're really, really excited to share this discussion with you. Please enjoy episode 10 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Ryan Holiday.
0: Hello, I'm Cameron McCormick, and I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from mass, to leave mediocrity in the rearview mirror, and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is a journey that we're on. And I can't tell you how excited I am, quite selfishly, honestly, to have a conversation with my guest today, Ryan Holiday. You see, Ryan has accomplished much in his 31 years on this planet. He's the author of seven books, many of which earned a spot on the New York Times bestseller list and have become perennial sellers. He's the founder of Brass Check, a creative advisory firm serving major corporations, media firms, musicians, and many of the most prominent authors whose works you'll also find on the New York Times bestseller list. And in early years, which sounds odd talking about a 31-year-old, he served as the director of marketing for American Apparel, and before that, he interned under the author Robert Greene, who many of you will likely know for several titles, but perhaps most for The 48 Laws of Power. And the most intriguing is all this productivity from a guy who dropped out of college at age 19. Now, I hope to explore that terrain of the last 12 years if you're willing to, rhyme. However, I'd like to go back and create some perspective around the early years. So you were born and raised in Sacramento, and if your, I guess, autobiography, if you were to write it, only pertained to the story of Ryan Holiday pre-college, what would that story plot be along with maybe a few chapter titles?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like my childhood was mediocre. Sounds like somehow an indictment of my parents, <laughs> but it was just—it was just, it was just t- very, very normal. Sacramento. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Lady Bird, but there's a, a wonderful quote at the beginning of, of the movie where it says Sacramento is the only town in the Midwest located in California, uh, <laughs> and and that sort of perfectly captures w- what it is. So it's just that you know it was an ordinary childhood in, in the sense that. I was good at some classes, not good at others. I, I certainly didn't get the sense that, and I don't think other people got the sense I was necessarily destined for being a writer or being, uh, a public figure of any kind. I was just like, you know, I, th- I think what's hard when you pursue as, you know, a somewhat of an unusual career, whether it's being a writer or a golfer or a movie director is that unless you grow up in Los Angeles or New York, and your parents are in those circles, you don't know anyone who does those things for a living, right? So, there wasn't a single adult that I met probably until I was 18 or 19, you know, aside from, you know, you're on the same flight as a celebrity or something, that made their money doing something other than a nine-to-five job. And, you know, Sacramento particularly is a government town. So, most of the people, both my parents worked for school districts or the sheriff's department so they they were civil servants and so you know it it was i just thought i would grow up and be a regular person and it wasn't until i was probably i guess i was a sophomore or a junior in high school i remember i wrote some essay for an english class that my teacher had, had loved and sort of ended up taking a liking to me and so when i was applying to colleges i asked her for a letter of recommendation and I, I remember very vividly she wrote in the in the letter of recommendation, I think it was to USC, where I did not get in, that she wrote, uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind Ryan will be a, you know, a, an incredibly successful writer and will make his mark, blah, blah. And that, that was literally the first time that I had ever even conceived of doing anything that wasn't, that that that, that something like that was even possible.
0: So you mentioned there were subjects that you were good at and some that you weren't. Were you aware at that time as you were in English class and as part of that projects were uh, writing assignments that you were actually had a, a pension or a, or a skill that maybe necessarily wasn't refined, of course, as any early skills are, but yet there was um, some shining moment coming out of it?
2: I don't know if I, if I stood out as a writer, but I, I did stand out as a reader. Like I just read all the time. I remember in fourth grade, my father had taken me to like a used bookstore and he thought he bought me all these Louis Lamour novels. Mm -hmm. He's this well known sort of, uh, pulp, you know, pulp fiction, uh, Western writer. He writes, you know, probably wrote like 500 Western books in the course of his life. And so, he bought me a bunch of them and I fell in love with them. And, and like the next week, I was not paying attention in class. This was in fourth grade. Miss Whitaker was her name. And she was talking and she could tell that I wasn't paying attention and I was trying to be sneaky about it. And she came over and said, what are you doing, you know, in front of the whole class? <laughs> and then she sort of like opened up my desk and I was reading. Then when she saw what I was reading, this this Western novel, she was amazed that I could, she was like, she didn't even believe that I could understand what was going on. This is a book for adults. And when she figured out that I was, I remember she wrote a letter home to my parents and suggested that I start taking these more advanced classes and stuff like that. Because, you know, the idea that I was so bored in, in class with what we were doing, that I was reading novels meant for, you know, adults, mm-hmm. that was probably one of the first flashes that there was something here. But it didn't immediately connect to the idea that I could write them for you know probably like fifteen more years.
0: That's brilliant. And do you remember even that uh, that desire that that um, love of reading even before the fourth grade, or was it right
2: around that time? You... I actually remember. I remember the opposite. I remember my father's mother, so my grandmother was a reading teacher, and I remember not liking going over to her house because she would always sort of make us do like reading lessons and quiz us and make us read books. Uh, so, I the, I don't remember how old I would have been, uh, probably like first or second grade, but I, I actually remember sort of before that, not particularly liking reading. And so, it wasn't until I started getting you know, put onto maybe more advanced stuff that I that I realized that it was enjoyable.
0: Yeah, I bet. And you're reading volume. I think I listened to an interview that uh, reported, you, sorry, where you reported you read some two or three books per week. Was it that voracious volume even back in fourth, fifth, sixth grade and beyond?
2: It was. It was certainly voracious. I don't know if it was at that volume. I remember, you know, like we'd go on a trip and I'd have a book and then I'd read it. And then uh, there wouldn't be any other books, so I'd read my sister's books, you know, and the next thing I know, I'm reading like the entire Babysitter's Club series or, you know, like uh, or the Nancy Drew. I'd read all the Hardy Boys books, so then I read all the Nancy Drew books because my sister had, my younger sister had them. So, I would basically read anything and everything. I wish, and obviously in retrospect, you know, I wish my parents had sort of cultivated what I was reading a little bit better in terms of like, you know... There, there's so many sort of classic books that I didn't read until I was much, much older. I, I wish my parents had sort of pushed me towards that, but I was definitely reading all the time and, and very much in love with it.
0: So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. What we understand is that um, satisfaction or enjoyment out of participating in anything fuels increased participation, whatever that is. So clearly you enjoyed reading as a young man or as a young boy, turning into a young man. Do you remember a point where you realized your reading turned from entertainment into, okay, I read for education now?
2: Yeah, it probably wasn't until later in high school. I remember I came across a list of an author. There was an author I liked, and he had a list of his website of his favorite books. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of said, I'm going to read all these books. And I, st- I, I my parents bought them all for me, and I I, I started reading them. And so, it wasn't until probably high school that I started reading, like, what I would say the books that sort of changed my life or opened Mm -hmm. my eyes. Everything else was sort of probably for entertainment before then. But what's interesting to me in retrospect is that I it never occurred to me at any point until probably after high school that... These were just done by ordinary human beings and then I could probably do it too. Do you know what I mean? Like, Like reading on like say golf, like, you know, let's say you fall in love with golf, you're pretty quickly participate. You, You might love watching golf, but you're also probably playing golf, even if you're not playing well, you know. I would say the vast majority of people who love reading do not do writing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, writing is a harder thing to do as a hobby. So, even the idea of, of getting paid for it. So, it, it, it probably wasn't until, you know, I began meeting writers when I was in college that I was like, oh, this is, uh I mean, I guess I wrote for a high school newspaper, but it, it wasn't until I met r- real writers who were actually successful whose books I'd read that I realized that this was like a... a a job or a trade, mm-hmm. just like basically any other trade. Right. And then I'm sure
0: on that subject of success, given your success, I'm sure you're accustomed to offering a good degree of life advice. And so the next question I have is where does dropping out of college at age 19 rank on your hierarchy of advice that you'd offer? And can you unpack that decision-making process around that massively, probably difficult decision?
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing about dropping out of college is that you you always want to be so careful about sort of narratives, right? And the mm-hmm. the example that I give with mine is like, so obviously, I say on my, my biography that I dropped out of college at 19, but I like turned 20 like two days later, mm-hmm. right? So, like even there, it seems different than, it, it seems much more dramatic than it actually was, right? And so, there's so many successful people who dropped out of college, but that doesn't necessarily mean that dropping out of college is what makes you successful. It, it could be You know, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates both had successful companies that they left college to pursue. And, you know, this is definitely true with athletes, right? It's not like athletes drop out of college and then decide to play basketball, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're very good at basketball and they're they're leaving college to become professionals in that sport. And so I sort of did the writing version of that, which is that I was going to college. I was majoring in both political science and creative writing. And I was going to graduate in three years and I ended up dropping the creative writing major and leaving college early, ultimately, to go work for a writer, one of whom was Robert Green, who is sort of my favorite writer on the planet. And so, to basically apprentice under him to, to, to get like a graduate degree in writing from this person. And so, when I left college, it wasn't to go figure out what I wanted to do it was to turn pro right. more or less at what I was already doing.
0: Yeah. You'd found your pursuit and you were uh, going to head full steam ahead in the direction that would fill up both the knowledge cup, the wisdom cup, et cetera, et cetera, as fast as possible. And so you sat at the feet of a master, namely Robert Green. And many think that that step of surrounding oneself with the knowledge, wisdom, and guidance is the key to achievement as if some sort of osmosis will occur. But I think, yeah. is it fair to say that, that our surroundings, meaning the people and resources, they are possible accelerants, but there was probably a set of internal characteristics that are more central to driving your development as a writer, meaning your professional skills?
2: Well, I mean, you could sit at the, fo- like I've had research assistants, I've my best research assistant that I've ever had, he's worked on, on like three or four books with me. He has no desire to be a writer. So He's wonderful. And, you know, n- not at all at the level of Robert Greene, even just where I am in my career, uh, or in terms of age. But this assistant who is, who I would, uh, has, has since moved on to other things and I'm, I'm very fond of is never, is not going to pick up from osmosis by being around me how to be a writer because that's not actually what he wants to do. He mm-hmm. has, he has the research skills. He's fantastic at tracking things down and tying off loose ends and, fact checking and doing all the things that are really important in being a research assistant. But when I had his job for Robert Green, I was not only pretty good at those things, but I had this other set, this other skill, which was, or this other thing going for me, which is that I really wanted to be Robert Green. Like I wanted to do what he was doing for a living. And so not only was I, so each task that I was assigned or each, you know, experience I had or event that I witnessed, was not just through the lens of my job, but also through the lens of what lesson can I learn here that will help me when I pursue this for myself in the future. So, you know, when I was, when Robert would send me to research stories or whatever, I was also, you know, how does this work? What do you want this for? How does this fit into the, you know, what I was trying to learn from him? I was getting paid. He was, he was, uh, you know, generous, but I would have also done the job for free because I was trying to learn, you know, just how the hell a book comes together. I mean, there wasn't any classes that I took in college or in high school that were like, when, once you have a book idea, these are the seven steps you follow. And then, you know, a, a publishable book comes out of the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you feel
0: like then as you filled up that bucket of wisdom and, and, and knowledge and also practical application being the author of seven, what do you feel like separates you, your writing
2: style and the success of your writing? The most important thing for a writer is just to have something to say, just the vast majority of books that don't offer any sort of particularly new perspective or insight or, you know, value to the market. And so I think one of the things that I try to do is the vast majority of my books are not really about me or even about what I know or feel, they're about things that I've learned from other people that I think I can explain and organize and present in a more accessible way. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've I, I probably, my, my three books on stoicism, outside of the original sort of text by Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or Epictetus, have almost certainly sold more copies than anyone writing about this topic ever. And that's not a reflection of me. It's a reflection of the fact that when I went and read all the other books about Stoicism, what I identified was that the original content was very good, but the explanation on top of it was almost worse and more confusing. And so what I wanted, like what I went into those books with was a strong point of view that there had been sort of a market failure, that there was this, you know, immensely valuable, interesting, you know, sort of vivid philosophy that had been done in injustice by interpreters and translators and uh, academics for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And what I wanted to do was translate and present that wisdom to practical people who did not think that they would be interested in philosophy. So Mm -hmm. like, what I'm bringing to the table there is that there's a very specific thing that I'm trying to accomplish and that that thing is mostly not about me. Right. So many authors they are like, I want to write a book because I want to get more speaking gigs or they want to write a book because, you know, they feel really lonely and they want they think this will make them famous or, you know, so much of being an author. You can live in your own head and you can become very selfish and really to make things that works for other people. You have to have this point of view, but also this thing you're trying to accomplish for someone else. And I, I think I'm pretty good at that.
0: Indeed. I'm interested to understand the, I guess, the mechanics behind the research that you have to do to interweave into the fabric of your amazing writing, the stories that then support the message in whether it's The Obstacle of the Way or, or Ego is the Enemy, both, both the novels that I've read cover to cover on numerous occasions.
2: Well, as a writer, one of the things I learned from Robert Green is that you sort of you obviously have some sort of opinions or hypotheses about the world. Like in his case, he's writing about power, you know, in in The Obstacle's Way, I'm writing about overcoming obstacles. And then you kind of have to go out and just read and research really widely. Just you're reading biographies and you're reading books about history and sports. And you're just sort of exploring the world with like one of your eyes just looking for information that might confirm or deny what you've learned or illustrate things. So, it's kind of about like pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Like uh, The Obstacle is the Way started with a note card. There was a book I read called The Inner Citadel by a philosopher named Pierre Hedeau who, who wrote a lot about stoicism and he talked about this stoic concept of turning obstacles upside down. And then so, I, I thought that was very interesting and I wrote that down on a note card. And then I went back to Marcus Aurelius and I read more about where where he had talked about this. And so now this sort of seed is planted that there's this interesting way of approaching obstacles. And then I probably didn't do anything with that note card for two or three years. I was just reading and thinking and working and going about my life, slowly accumulating connections to that that idea and thus forming a pattern that, hey, lots of really successful people or interesting people or people that I admire Share this attitude, and that formed the basis of a book proposal, and then the research went out once the book was sold. then I went out and filled it out even more. But you know when when you and I connected over email, it's sort of a good example. I'm writing my next book, which will be a sequel to those those two books, and I've been you know researching and thinking a lot about golf. And so you and I connected, and the first thing I was doing was somewhat selfishly asking you if you had any recommendations, what you thought of some books that I had read. And and so, so I'm not only just reading, but I'm also trying to go out and experience things and also talk to people who have, have sort of a lifetime of, of expertise in a given topic to sort of float my theories by and, and run through them and, and try to just get as much sort of solid weight behind whatever I'm talking about as possible.
0: Let's dive directly into stoicism for the listeners okay. out there that uh, are either unaware or have not read, but are soon to read, of course, your, your books. You mentioned in one interview um, a loose definition, and I'll let you recategorize or reframe it. We don't control the world around us. We control how we respond to the world around us as being a good loose de- definition of stoicism. Is that is that correct, or can you unpack that in a different yeah. way or
2: more? No, I, I think I think that is a good definition. If I was sort of elaborating, I'd say that the stoic believes... Not just how we respond, but that we can respond well or that we should respond with excellence and virtue and honor and discipline and, you know, clarity and, and duty and all, all these sort of important traits. So it, it's, it's not, you know, how can I use everything to make more money? Right. Or how can I use everything to become more famous? But it is loosely saying, like, look, the world is so much bigger and more powerful than we are as an individual. But what the, in, the the superpower that the individual possesses is that you know when the world delays us on the tarmac of a of an airport or when the world you know tears our ACL or when the world deprives us of a family member or a loved one or when you know the world sends some rude person to accost us in a the supermarket these are all things that are outside of our control but what our superpower is what our ability To do with all of this powerlessness is to determine what we're going to do with that, right? Mm. How are we going to respond to that rude person? Uh, What's our recovery regimen going to be uh, in terms of rehabbing this injury? What are we going to do while we're sitting stuck on that airplane? Um, Are we going to pick up a book? Are we going to complain? You know, are we going to sit there and have a quiet moment to ourselves and enjoy it? You know, what are we going to do? I think Stoicism is primarily focused on that. What like what, what, are you going to do about it is sort of the question that I think Stoicism tries to answer sure. or help you answer.
0: And then more specifically, uh, moving into your book, The Obstacle is the Way, where Marcus Earlius says the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. I think I read that you first read that passage in Meditations at age 19 and what yeah. I'd, what I'd like to understand here is what did the 19-year-old Brian deduce from that and how has that changed over the years since as you, as you've developed uh, content and valuable writings around that subject.
2: Well, I you know I think that sort of connects to the research question which is the first time I read it if I'm you know sort of thinking about it honestly it probably kind of went over my head or I read it and I thought yeah, that makes sense. You know, every obstacle is an opportunity in some way or another. It's a, I don't disagree with that. And then, you know, then I just went back to my normal life. And then, you know, when I saw it again, when I was reading the Hado book where he talks about turning obstacles upside down, I took the the time to sort of write this down by hand and think about it a little bit more. And then I actively went and I looked for more and more examples and I kept my eye open. And so, on the one hand, on the research side, I'm exploring this idea and I'm sort of following this thread. And then in my actual life, I've gone on a, you know, I dropped out of college, which had been stressful and difficult. I worked for Robert Green. I developed a sort of a career in marketing. I ended up becoming the director of marketing of a publicly traded fashion brand, you know, a a few years after I dropped out of college. And so now I'm in, you know, I'm managing people, I'm dealing with stress, I'm dealing with crises. You know, I'm dealing with bad publicity and controversy and I'm, I'm having to actually apply that idea, right? So it's like, okay, an employee comes to me and they say, look, I know I was supposed to, you know, finalize this legal paperwork by, or that, you know, negotiate this advertising by, by Friday, but I forgot or, but the person has, you know, become unresponsive or I noticed this problem or whatever it is. And then, You know, you have to decide as a boss, do you get, do you yell at them for this? Do you get upset? Do you storm out of the room or do you say, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? What opportunities are present in this? Right. It's like, okay, an advertiser messes something up. Well, obviously that's not great, but what sort of compensation are you going to get from them out of this? Or what processes are you going to put into place? that prevent this from happening now that you know that this error is a possibility. So, it was a mix of both, I run into this thing, I research it at theoretically, but then also in my actual life and in my job, I'm having to deal with it practically. Mm-hmm. And I think those came together in the philosophy that I tried to write about in the book.
0: Yeah. And so then moving into all that concept across into the sports domain, which is the domain that I live in, we talk about controlling the controllables and sure. not being a victim of circumstance incorrect. In fact, cr- uh, creating your own script, playing it forward into how you see yourself reacting to the invariable challenges that come along, whether it be in. uh, golf or any other sport there are certain action steps that you feel are foundational across whether it's uh, life business or uh, or
2: sport well the the idea of controlling the controllable is is important and i think it goes to one of the more essential stoic lessons in fact epictetus who's one of the the great stoic philosophers would say that our first task in life is to make a distinction between the things that are up to us and the things that are not up to us so you know how much you practice is up to you. How you play necessarily is not like wh- where the ball falls, not necessarily up to you, right? Or the the scouting or the research that you do on a course, that's up to you. Your pregame ritual is up to you. The time you put in the, is up to you. How the other players play, unfortunately, is not up to you. And so one of the things I think that's that, and I talk to coaches uh, in all these different sports, it's the same thing, which is like, it's not just about controlling the controllable, but it's making sure that once the thing sort of leaves your hands, whether it's a ball, you know, it's a ball or the club or whatever, that you're immediately focused on what you're going to do next rather than lingering in the past as to, you know, I can't believe I did that. That shot should have go- gone in. Why did it bounce that way? You know, all the things that are that are not only outside of your control, but have already happened, I think what the Stoic is again trying to focus on is what am I going to do with this, right? So instead of regretting a shot that ends up in a bunker, a Stoic would put a hundred percent of their energy on focusing on how they're going to get out of the bunker mm-hmm. um, and and how they're going to use this in an advantage and find an advantage in in one way or another, right? How are they going to how are they going to use this? Whether it's sort of to show their opponent that they're not rattled by it whether it's to wow the crowd with something really impressive, or if it's even just to say, you know, let's say you're you're down terribly in a match. Well, now is this not a chance to play without the pressure of needing to win? You know, you're not going to win. So how can you focus on using this unique set of circumstances to, to practice something that you otherwise would not have been able to practice in, say, competition? Right. That, the the Stokes always looking for it's, it's not that every bad situation can be turned into an indisputably positive situation. It's that there is some value or lesson or opportunity within a so-called negative situation that you want to focus on instead of being upset or angry or disappointed.
0: You spoke a bit about the uh, skill of reframing, the skill of being present-minded rather than future-focused or rather than looking, performing with two eyes firmly planted on the rearview mirror. And we speak at length about that with, with our clients, both at high levels of performance or aspiring to those high levels of performance. But to a person, male or female, what oftentimes gets in the way of executing on that intent and that well-meaning intent is the layer of emotion that we carry with performance in your experience both practically helps you overcome the interruption the interference that emotion causes or and additionally in the stoic um, writings
2: well it's, it's interesting because the popular conception of stoicism is that you have no emotion right that you're emotionless i don't think that's true i think what The Stoics are trying to do is there's a line from Nassim Taleb. Uh, he says, it's about the domestication of emotion. So it's about sort of getting them out of under control, getting the wildness and the unpredictability out of it. So like basketball is a great example. I guess it's probably not as much in golf, but it's like, if you don't control your temper in, in basketball, let's say you're arguing over a bad call. If you're arguing over the bad call and you're able to effectively communicate to the referee, what you think they're missing that can have an impact on the game and maybe they're not going to miss that call in the future. Like, you know, you think a player is traveling or they're, they're cheating or, or sort of, you know, towing the line in some way, effectively communicating that to a referee is, is effective and can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But if you don't control your temper, if you get so angry that when you communicate with the referee, you end up yelling or cursing, or you're obsessed with how unfair they're being and you, you get really, really upset, you can get a technical foul, which gives points to the other side. And, you know, I was talking to a, a basketball coach, uh, one of the, I think one of the best basketball coaches alive right now. I won't say who he is because he didn't say I could share it. But, he, you know, he was saying, look, the reason I control my temper is that I've never saw it as being very prudent to give points away to the other team. And so, you know, you have these some coaches or players who think that being very passionate and being very excited is sort of fuel that makes them who they are, but it's also very dangerous fuel. It can blow up on you at any time. And so I think what the stoic is trying to do is figure out where that balance is to care about this thing deeply and want it to be a certain way is fine. But if you're, if you're wound so tight and your emotions are so unregulated that when, when that thing is challenged, you lose it to the degree where it becomes destructive. Then it's a problem. Sure. Like I was actually just reading, I just saw a headline, I didn't read the article, but there was some golfer who, who threw his club and it, it hit someone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this just happened. Yeah, that, that's started. obviously, mm-hmm. yeah, that's terrible, right? Not just for the game, for whatever consequences are going to be for that specific player, but you know, because this guy didn't control his temper or his emotions, another human being dealt with the consequences of that. And and I don't think that's, that's what anyone wants.
0: You wrote a piece on post-traumatic growth, and we talk about a concept here at Altus. The concept centered around reaction to challenge, which is the essence of what we're describing right now. And you referenced 49ers coach Bill Walsh when he said, "Almost always, your road to victory goes through a place called failure." Mm -hmm. Uh, Has there been a specific setback on your road to success through which you've passed, and how did how did you deal with it?
2: You know, I I would say I've been relatively fortunate in that so far in my career, the setbacks have all been relatively minor. And, and by that, I just mean that, like, if I was to say them to people, they wouldn't, you know, fall over in sympathy. Mo- most of them are sort of tactical things that they were big deals to me, but they didn't, you know, they, they don't totally, you know, I've been fortunate, you know, I didn't lose both my parents, or I didn't nearly die in a car accident, or, you know, I wasn't crushed uh, by some massive failure. But, you know, my, my last book, I wrote, I tried my hand at, at a genre called narrative nonfiction. And I think it's it's far and away my best book in terms of writing. It challenged me in all these ways that I, I haven't been able to, I hadn't been challenged before. I had to learn a new style of writing, I had to sort of secure access to a, a number of, of really difficult and unapproachable sources, to wrap my head around this super complicated topic. And I think I wrote one of my best books. But when I look at it from a sales perspective, it's one of my, you know, if, if that's the metric you're using, it's one of my less successful books. And so, you know, what I take from that is a couple of things. So first off, I think as a ri- in writing specifically, you want your success to be the work, not how it's received by an audience or by the market, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Herman Melville writes Moby Dick and it's, it's savaged by the reviews. And then only with time do we realize what a classic it is, right? So if he had been able to, to sort of comfort himself with firm knowledge that he created a classic... He would have been obviously able to weather that storm a little bit more easily. I just talked to a movie director last night who wrote and directed a huge movie that was commercially successful, but critically it was, you know, decimated. It was nominated for what we call in the US a Razzie Award, which means it's like the worst movie of the year. And he was talking to me just about how devastated he was by that. And so so sometimes you can be commercially successful, but if you don't get the recognition you want, you feel like a failure, so it's it's better to sort of focus on the, the the merits of the work and so I've tried to obviously talk myself through this that hey, look, what I'm proud of is that I accomplished this thing that I did this thing that I wasn't sure I should be able to do, and that the the lots of sales or very few sales is utterly indifferent. Uh, you know, I have to be indifferent to the mm-hmm. book has sold well i mean it's so it, it's hard for me to call it a failure it's it sold very well, but the other thing I tell myself is that. You know, I'd been on a, on a hot streak. You know, each one of my books had successively sold more copies than the previous book. And so to have this setback, uh, if we want to call it that was also really helpful in, in that it helped, I think, manage expectations a little bit for me, right? Not just for myself, but for the publisher that, Hey, you know, look, you can't take anything for granted just because you touch something doesn't mean it's going to turn to gold. You have to be patient. You know, it takes time for books to find their audience. So this last book was also just helpful to me in a, in a reset. But I think what's important to note there is that those are both perspectives that I had to, to sort of sit with myself and talk through and work through. That's not what our natural instinct would be to, to accept, right? We always want things to be bigger and better and immediately gratifying. And so sometimes you have to take the time to sort of walk yourself through those things. And then I think that's where something like the Bill Walsh quote comes in is that, you know, your life is not a successive series of things always going your way. And it's not, you know, your life is going to have pits and valleys in it as well as as spikes. And you've got to realize that it that that's that's just part of how it goes
0: indeed and, and framing it that way is really insightful and i certainly see that perspective uh, and i see it's, i see a beneficial perspective in sport to frame things that way but at the same time when you're talking about professional sport where your livelihood depends on success on the field against an opponent it's um, seemingly very easy to reframe success as home runs hit or at bats As points scored on the field, as rounds shot under par, et cetera, et cetera, and finishes in tournaments. So it's hard not to then shift to assessing what you do with some level of objectivity relative to personal pride, relative to the process of getting better. But at the same yep. time, the comparisons back to outcomes as drivers of an ability to continue to do what you do, what's your advice when the need to measure yourself against outcomes is just a reality?
2: Sure. And look, you know, it's obviously wonderful to say that, like, I don't measure success by money, but we still need money to feed our families, right? So there, there there's also just the objective reality that, like, let's say you work for a company, and uh, your boss fires you for lack of performance you can't say but i have my own performance metrics <laughs> and and those should trump yours like that's that's obviously not realistic but i th- i think what i try to do is put i try to put most of my focus on sort of metrics or indicators that are inside my control knowing that if you nail those on average, you're going to get the things that you want, right? Or Mm -hmm. or that it's going to translate into that sort of more objective success. Like, you know, Warren Buffett talks about sort of that an inner scorecard is more important than an external scorecard. Sure. But he's also one of the world's richest men. And that's because the inner scorecard of, say, you know, in, in his case, trying to be hyper rational, trying to think very long term, trying to be fair Trying to find opportunities that other people are overlooking. That's his sort of inner scorecard that happens to also be strongly correlated with the external scorecard. But what it allows him to do is say, let's, you know, uh, during the the tech bubble, most people thought Warren Buffett had sort of lost his, uh, it sort of lost it. And, And they thought it now too, with the sort of second tech boom that because he wasn't investing in technology stocks, he was missing out on all these opportunities and therefore he was a failure and he was done and he should be written off. And what he was saying is, is like, look, you guys are measuring things in a very short term way. Who is the hottest tech stock? What's the newest, you know, fanciest, most groundbreaking company? And I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you can't make money doing those things. He's saying, I just think Coca-Cola is a better bet over the long term. And so his his sort of scorecard is of a longer, more expansive perspective than what other people are doing. And so that's that's kind of how I try to think about it, too. You know, look, there are some years that the Spurs uh, get knocked out in the first round of the playoffs, but then they surprise everyone by winning a championship. And their sort of inner metric or their metric is just to sort of always be a contender, to be in the running, rather than to try to sort of dominate, you know, Everyone at every moment. Th- their goal is to sort of be a, con- a perennial contender, and I think that's a much more achievable metric than others.
0: And therefore, sustainability is it becomes possible at that point, rather than just measuring yourself based on championships won. That makes sense. Exactly. So, if you go to Ego is the Enemy, where, um, correct me if I'm wrong, we're, we're dealing with far more of what goes on the inside, that internal dialogue, etc. And I've got a few questions that I'd like to try and sure. um, tease out uh, relative to that novel. With success or maybe notoriety, it, it carries with it a burden, which you wrote about in a blog. And you referenced a piece from Seneca, Slavery Dwells Beneath Marble and Gold. hmm How do you recommend people um again business world personal life or sporting who gather this notoriety deal with that and what skills or actions would you advise them on after all i I think maybe ego we could frame as kryptonite so um, towards internal development what's the antidote to getting caught in that trap of notoriety being such an
2: important part of what's happening to you well that, that is the interesting thing about fame right fame is outside of your control And it's particularly positive fame, right? It's probably easier to just get people to know about you, period, if you're willing to do anything and everything. But the idea of sort of your self-worth or your value being dependent on what other people think or know about you is really precarious because it makes you chase other people and other people's opinions. There's a line from Marcus Rios that I love. He goes, look, we care about ourselves more than other people, right? We're self-interested. Yet, for whatever reason, we often care about other people's opinions about us more than our own. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people, particularly I I think athletes, you know, they dream uh, as a kid of being famous or rich or successful, and then they often find that the more of that they achieve, actually the less enjoyable it is, right? You become slowly sort of imprisoned by it or inhibited by it, or it, it turns this thing that you loved... Or that you, you had all this enjoyment in and it turns it into an obligation or a burden. And so I think ego tells us that when we're rich, when we're famous, when we're president, you know, when we're powerful, whatever it is, that then we will be happy or then we'll be able to do whatever it is that we claim we want to do. And the truth is that history just doesn't bear this out. The idea that getting something will make you feel differently. Is probably one of the clearest sort of disproven facts that we have that, you know, there's this great Buddhist line, wherever you go, there you are. If you're miserable now, you're not going to be happy when you're the CEO of a fortune 500 company. Sure. You're going to be you, the miserable president <laughs> of a fortune 500 company. You know, yeah. yep. one of the things I conclude ego with is this idea of like, look, we think if we get really good professionally, we'll be happy personally. And I think it's probably the other way around. If we can nail what's distressing us personally, it will actually free us up to have more energy professionally. Obviously, Tiger Woods is that's someone I've been writing about or thinking about. Tiger Woods is sort of a cautionary tale in that regard and that he was sort of so dominant in golf when his personal life was such a mess. But probably a better example of this would be Michael Phelps who was obviously dominant as a swimmer early on in his career. And then he began to drift away and not like the sport and, you know, sort of struggled in his last Olympics. He walks away from it. Then he ends up getting a DUI. He goes to rehab. He does a lot of sort of personal work and therapy. And then he, he comes back in Rio and is like the oldest person to ever win a gold medal He's now, uh, you know, separated by, uh, I think he's competed in the most Olympics and there's a chance he may be able to compete in one more final Olympics. And so what I love about that story is just I think it's, it's, it's pretty good evidence that if you can get your act together and if you can deal with whether it's ego or depression or anger or, you know, a wounded inner child or whatever it is, that it actually frees up those resources to be better at whatever you're trying to do or accomplish.
0: Can you contrast for me the ill of ego against the need for self confidence? And I guess a little backstory. I guess in my own personal life, I know when I give myself some credit for a contribution, maybe doing some something successfully in the coaching arena, I get this hit of dopamine and it lifts me up. But at the same time, if I err too much in the direction of humility, I don't seem to pause and give myself the chance to fill up that cup of confidence to think that I'm better at something, to think I'm good or even great or even world class at something, and that's kind of what drives me to, on a day-to-day basis, always look for opportunities to improve and therefore for me to step to any task. And I, I, I hear this from athletes too, to step to the first T, I I need to feel like I've got this air underneath me that's carrying me towards uh, feeling like I can be successful.
2: Yeah, well, I, I try to make a distinction between confidence and ego. I think confidence is very important, right? If you don't Think you can do something. It's going to be very unlikely that you're going to be able to do it. If you're looking at some shot and you say, this shot is impossible. I'm never going to be able to make it. I might as well quit now. I'm a loser, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're not going to be able to hit it just because you think you can drive it, you know, a thousand yards. It's not going to help you get there at all. Right. So confidence, I think needs to be based on evidence. It needs to be based on a real understanding of, of where we have talent or value. Ego is, to me, something beyond that. It's this sort of self-importance. It's an association of our self-worth with our identity or confidence. So if you feel confident in your swing, you're a baseball player. If you feel confident in your swing because you're hitting lots of home runs, well, what happens if you're not hitting home runs anymore, but your swing is actually exactly the same? It's just the reality of the the pitchers that you're up against, it's a reality of the weather, maybe you're injured, you know, it could be maybe you're not getting enough practice time, the swing hasn't changed. But if you're associating your identity or your confidence with the external results, you've now put yourself in a kind of a precarious position. Um, And so to to me, confidence is this sort of understanding of, of both our strengths and our weaknesses, whereas ego is a sort of a not just an exaggerated understanding of our strengths, but it's also a lack of understanding or even ability to conceive of weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I've never been in a situation where I thought ego would make things better. Right? Like, I'm never, you know, on a team or working on a project. And I feel that a, a deficiency in ego is what's holding us back. It's often the opposite, right? It's often that we're not doing the work what we need to to do or having unnecessary conflict or we are going down a dangerous road because ego has crept into the situation and has sort of Corrupted things.
0: Yeah, without doubt. Without doubt. I think that uh, confidence for me, as I observe it from high performing athletes, is an attitude of I can, I will, just watch me. Um, It's a self assuredness that they can get the job done. But on the other side of that, they present with a lack of ego and an openness to both self-reflect look inwardly to find opportunities to improvement but at the same time also when they have a trusted voice in front of them or around them a trusted team around them they are also open to input from the outside which you speak to epictetus in the beginner's mind one cannot learn that which they think they already know And, and that's just not 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 standard it's not something that I encounter when I'm dealing with those that are world-class, whether they be grown adults playing the PGA LPGA Tour, even if they are 14, 15-year-old juniors that are some of the best in the world?
2: Well, I think that's really common with, particularly with people who are talented or successful early, right? So if you're a great golfer in high school, or you're a great baseball player, and you're drafted, you know, out of high school, the problem is that when you turn pro, or when you go to the next level, there's a steep learning curve, right? Like, LeBron James, the best player in high school, does not immediately become the best player in the NBA. And so, if you walk into that situation with a, a very strong ego, with your confidence based on the wrong things, you're going to get your ass kicked and then you're going to be very despondent and discouraged by what's happening. But if instead, like what I like, I mentioned the, the book that I wrote earlier that was sort of a stretch for me. I did not go into that saying this is going to be easy. My other books were successful. This will be successful. I'm going to knock this out in 2 weeks. What I went into it with was one a respect for it, that I knew it would be hard and I knew it would be difficult, but I bow- and, and and a certain even intimidation about that, but I was backed also by the confidence of knowing that look, I don't quit, right? I'm a quick learner. That I do my research that I have a network of people that I can turn to and that I'm going to be willing to ask for advice and listen to feedback and that I, that I know that I don't know a lot about what I'm about to do, but that I'm open to learning and that I'm confident I'm going to, to put in the work to learn that. That's how I was able to come out of the other side with something that I'm proud of. And so, to me, that's the difference between ego and confidence. You know, if you go into it with ego, you're going to come, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you go into it with this sort of garbage ego, you're going to come out with something that's very self-absorbed or mm-hmm. or mediocre as a result. Right, for sure. A clarification for me,
0: we talk about edge earning in sports and again, a quote from your blog, apparently you can get the impression that I've done a lot of reading about you and and you put out an amazing volume of, um, of information that we'll provide links to for those that are listening. But you said, discipline is a form of freedom, but left unchecked becomes a form of tyranny. Can you help those out of aspiring to become world-class in anything, resolve the difference or, or that inflection point? Because my perspective is to be uncommon, one must do uncommon things. And I speak to sure. athletes a lot about routine, daily habits in training. And while they may seem mundane on a day-to-day basis, it's doing that easy stuff, the simple stuff, as well as the hard stuff that they can create separation from the mass. A so re- routine as far as a foundation, of activities or actions that you do to grow your own skill is massively important.
2: We're definitely in agreement that routine is essential, discipline is essential, sort of order is is essential. I think, you know, doing the same things over and over again is obviously how you get great at them and that you're not going to become great or world-class with sort of a haphazard, you know, undisciplined, sort of throw everything at the wall mentality and then hope that it sticks. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we often see that world-class people don't have a problem wanting to practice or wanting to be disciplined, that often this natural tendency is in some ways in excess in them and it it can either cause problems in their career or in their personal life. So, Tiger Woods, was like obviously one of the first golfers to really see himself as a full-fledged athlete, right? He weight trained, he ran, but then many of the injuries that he experienced in his career were a result of overtraining, right? So his problem wasn't that he couldn't get up off the couch and go to the weight room. His problem was that he couldn't get out of the weight room and rest on the couch and ends up ends up overexerting himself and and setting his career back with injuries. So I think that's one way where where discipline can become a form of tyranny. Like I have an Apple Watch and so I have my calorie goal that I try to hit every day. It's actually harder for me to take a rest day. There's not you can't program in a rest day. So it's <laughs> it's it's harder for me to to look at my watch at 4 p.m. You know, it's two PM. I haven't worked out today. I haven't decided if today was a rest day. But yesterday, it was hard for me to let myself not hit that goal.
0: You have an always-on taskmaster, don't
2: you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so that's actually harder. But then I think also in one's personal life, this can be harder, right? Like, you know, to realize that, for instance, like, let's say you're a really disciplined person, you're, you're very organized, you work, it's hard to say not treat your children as a project or to not treat your hobbies as something that you have to necessarily excel at or dominate at. Or to turn your relationship with your, your spouse into a job of some kind. You know, my, my wife says this to me all the time because I, I have the same tendency. She's like, you know, all you've talked to me about today is work stuff because we, we have a company that we run together. You haven't like talked to me as like a human being. And so that sort of discipline and that always on and that dedication in excess can actually isolate not only isolate you personally, but also can damage you professionally because you can overtrain and overwork. Sure. So,
0: well-rounded life, well-rounded individual. You speak Mm -hmm. there a little bit about that law of diminishing returns. Just because you do
2: more doesn't necessarily mean the yield curve will be one-to-one, does it? Yeah. and, And it's not just diminishing returns, but at a certain point, it can... Can obviously turn destructive. You know, yeah. you only hit so many range balls before you—you know—you blow out your shoulder or something, and mm-hmm. and that's obviously not what you're trying to do by practicing. Sure,
0: sure. You've been amazing with your time. Some uh, final question here. All right. Coming attractions. What can we expect from Ryan Holiday, and where are you directing your time and attention personally and professionally?
2: Yeah, I'm doing. Uh, so I'm doing this sequel to to Obstacle and Ego, which I'm I'm spending a lot of time thinking and, and working on. I, I try not to talk about projects. At least publicly while while they're still sort of in the embryonic stage <laughs> but you know I, I'm so I'm writing every day on 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 a next book how much do you write every day it's really hard to do more than a couple hours so like you know four hours of writing in one day would be probably unusual it's probably between two and three and then the rest of the day is researching and thinking and you know sometimes deliberately not working so hopefully my mind can sort of unconsciously solve a problem that I've been dealing with writing-wise. Yep. And then, you know, we have this website we built out called Daily Stoic, where we do, you know, a sort of a stoic meditation uh, that goes out to about 150,000 people every morning. So, I'm sort of constantly writing and thinking about and working on just sort of this, this sort of stoic philosophy idea. And it's probably my, my favorite thing that I do. Beautiful. And that website, again, is dailystoic.com. And you can sign up for the email. It's just dailystoic.com slash email.
0: Fantastic. And if people want to learn more about you, uh, social media handles.
2: Yeah, I think I'm at Ryan Holiday pretty much, pretty much everywhere.
0: Great. Fantastic. Ryan, I can't thank you enough for the pearls of wisdom that are not just littered, but filled through this entire almost hour conversation. And certainly if there's anything, any call to action that you want to uh, leave our listeners with, then now would be a great time.
2: No, uh, I, it, it was an honor to speak and uh, it's great to meet everyone. Excellent. Thank you again, mate.
1: Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.